0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of California State University, Sacramento. Today I'm chatting with Professor Poshuk Fu about Hong Kong media and Asia's Cold War, out with Oxford University Press in 2023. Dr. Fu is a professor of history, Asian American studies, and global studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign where he has taught since 1995. He has also been a distinguished visiting professor at Chinese University of Hong Kong and a visiting uh, Shijian, forgive my pronunciation, Professor of Humanities at East China Normal University, Shanghai. He earned his PhD at Stanford. Professor Fu has been the author, editor, or co-editor of many books, uh, including, but not limited to, uh, Against the Currents, rewriting Hong Kong film history, The Cold War in Asian cinemas, Uh, which, uh, a full disclaimer, I have a piece in on on Indonesian film. (laughs) Um, uh, China in Hong Kong, Shaw Brothers Cinema, China Forever, Shaw Brothers and the Making of a Diasporic Cinema, Between Shanghai and Hong Kong, The Politics of Chinese Cinemas, Imagining Cultural China, The Shaw Brothers Media Empire, The Cinema of Hong Kong, History, Arts, Identity, 1900 to 1997, and Passivity, Resistance, and Collaboration, Intellectual Choices in Occupied Shanghai, 1937-1945. Uh, he has also published many articles and won major awards, including an Institute for Advanced Studies Fellowship, Ful- uh, Fulbright Research uh, Scholarship, Mellon Faculty, uh, Mellon Faculty Grant, and a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur uh, Fellowship. Dr. Fu, uh, Poshek, if I may, welcome yes. to New Books in History.
1: Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a wonderful here.
0: Yeah, and and I'm really excited to chat with you. Um, as I enjoyed this book so much, and we collaborate. As I said, we collaborated in the past, uh, but never formally met. So this is a great opportunity to meet you. And I was lucky enough to have a piece on Indonesian anti-communist propaganda film in the um, Cold War and Asian cinema as a volume you edited with uh, Manfung Yip, uh, which came out in 2019 and is now in paperback. Correct? Yeah, paperback
1: out Paperback oh yeah. in 2021. Yeah. 2021.
0: Great. Yeah um before we get into hong kong media and asia's cold war would you please tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be an expert on hong kong cinema and the larger issues of the intersection of culture and politics in late 20th century china so i know that's a big question but uh tell us who you are and how you came to be what's your origin story
1: yeah this is a good question uh you know i i was uh, i grew up in hong kong and uh Actually, when I was a kid, you know, I I watch lots and lots of movies, and uh, without knowing that, I'm going to write about them, you know, and uh, and uh, but just watch them because of my family like uh, like a movie, and then I I came from a uh, really a uh, not the kind of Hong Kong that people are familiar with. Uh, when people think about Hong Kong, they think about all these uh, high rises, super high rises, and and uh, busy place. I came from the uh, a small fishing village of Hong Kong and but now it's uh, different now but you know, when I grew up so most people uh, most people do think well to well, really go to watch movies and things like that so, and that's why I watch so many movies and uh and then I uh, I and then I uh went to Canada uh for undergraduate and then uh, I was there I was uh, becoming very socially engaged uh, and uh, engage in other things uh, involved in Chinatown and lots of uh, uh, student student activities that really helped me in a way shape my kind of intellectual thinking about politics, and uh, and then I, I went back to uh, to Hong Kong after finish my BA uh, from you from United, Toronto, and there and then I worked for several years and uh, uh, for. Many different kind of jobs, uh, you know, teaching high school, and working for uh, for newspaper, and as a uh, consultant, so different kind of jobs. So all these really, all these very experiences also really helped me in a way when I look back. But in that time, I thought that I was in a crossroad, what to do with my future, you know. Uh, but uh, but then I later got, got a very good opportunity to come back to the to come to the U.S. and went to Stanford to study PhD. And I was not sure should I go into history or go to literature, but then it turned out that I, uh, I do in Chinese history, because I was very grave, very fortunate to have two very very good uh, uh, professors advisors who really indulgently, you know, allow me to do things that is not strictly history at the time, uh, because in the 1980s when I did my PhD, most people at that time do social history, economic history that I'm not good at and, and, and interested in, especially with my experiences as, as a student, uh, with a socially engaged student and also as a journalist and, and teacher. So and uh, so they allow me to so do history uh, more in the cultural, intellectual history, things like that. And, uh, and I also at the same time, I did a what the time they call a certificate in competitive literature so I could allow me uh, to get my interest in politics and culture uh, together. Because I know that they both influence each other so much, so much. And, uh, and at the time I did not work on, uh, on, on film too, but I didn't know that film could be a, uh, a uh, subject of history. I, uh, my first book, uh, my re- dissertation was really about uh, about Chinese, Literary intellectuals, how they respond to the Japanese occupation. I that is what I began to unconsciously bring culture and politics together in seeing how people shaped by the all the the the, the you know the Chinese traditions, nationalisms and things like that, survive, and respond to the brutal foreign regimes in Shanghai during the World War II. So, and after I the book, I become more and more more conscious and aware of my interests. And then I also, in a way, uh, becomes very fortunate when I look for my new uh, research topics. I went to Hong Kong at the time to visit families, and I happened to meet a couple of people who that time uh, 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 ran, uh, you know, so at that time he called, uh, organized a film festival and uh, and uh, on Chinese cinema, Hong Kong cinema, Border Crossing. So he they provide me a lot of materials, which people told me that could never, never find them uh, about in, in occupied Shanghai. That was about the cinema. Uh, you know, because uh, since I, I did my, my first year book, I'm always interested in trying to emphasize ambiguity and complexity in our way of doing history. And I put popular culture, literary culture in that. And I thought about no one ever done movies, theaters, or that kind of popular culture. But many people told me that it's impossible that you could not find any sources because the cinema in occupied Shanghai was considered collaborators, traitors. So all the sources were either suppressed, were, were you know, I mean, just were lost to, uh, to neglect. But when I was in Hong Kong, uh, a, a good friend of mine at that time who organized the conference was able to find a lot of great sources, some from Japan and some from private collections and some from China. And they start my new interest and now to get into cinema. So, and then all my childhood memory, experience watching movie, all come back. And then, and then, I mean, in the 90s, uh, with all the interest in popular culture, in history, film, Become now a very important and an important sources. Many people thought about that. So, uh, so I. There's then I get into cinema, and I look into the the uh, occupy uh, Shanghai cinema, and slowly I also work on also occupy uh, Shanghai and also wartime Hong Kong cinema together. So we call a book, you know, between Shanghai and Hong Kong. So, but I think I, uh, as you said, I carry the the two things. Uh, The main use is that how to get, understand history in its more complexity and in all its ambiguities, in how people live through them and how politics and culture shape all these human struggles and survival and how humans catch up in this conflict and dynamic between these politics and culture forces. And the second thing I'm really always interested in is that, you know, how to uh, bring or recover aspects of history that for many different reasons been repressed, been hidden, or been covered. So I think I was fortunate to find in Occupy Cinema and uh, also to how many of the so-called collaborators, how they lived through it. So, uh, and, then, and, and, and then all these things led to my a new project that took me a long time to write this book, uh, uh, the, the Cold War, because very a few people interested in Cold War uh, in, uh, in, in Hong Kong and, and, and China and uh, in, in the Chinese communities. And, uh, and they are also the people also always dismiss uh, the films, the literatures of the time, as nothing but pure and uh, propaganda trash. So, and uh, but I, I start watching all of them and I watched many of those when I was a kid and myself when I was growing up. So I think that might be a, a new way to look at that. And uh, and then uh, and then so I, I start asking, actually at first it's a very, really, very really simple question. You know, uh, uh, I remember that Hong Kong, as you know very well, Michael, you know, more than 95% people there speak Cantonese, came from the south. But when I when, 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 when I was a kid growing up in the in, in the 60s and things like that, all the most important movies we watch were either from Hollywood, Japanese movie, or especially Mandarin movies. I think you talk about Bruce Lee, you talk about the Shaw brothers, they all speak Mandarin. Even though the speakers were Cantonese, so I asked a question: Why Mandarin cinema or the print media, the journals, newspapers, all the editors, all the writers, mostly written in a form that was highly Mandarinized or highly literate? So it was this simple question that let me move slowly, slowly into Cold War because the Cold War was actually the background and the context with which all this we can call a diasporic cinema, diasporic writers came into being in Hong Kong and they become so dominant and Cantonese movie become so marginalized that in the late 60s and early 70s stopped production and Cantonese language were not considered a good written expression until the 80s and 90s. So I think so I can see that hmm, Cold War actually had played a big role, but I I don't know much about the Cold War. So I began to read a lot about the Cold War and that slowly began to become more understanding how Cold War began to shape the local politics the local cultural formation and the culture and the modernization of Hong Kong. And how Hong Kong haven't been really paid much attention by the historians and other scholars, which played an extremely important role as the nerve center of a propaganda and psychological warfare in Asia, especially about Chinese diaspora. Ethnic Chinese around the group. So I think there are some people who start looking at the uh, uh, Cold War uh, movies in Hong Kong, but they simply look at oh, the right and left, the thing, without putting in a much larger uh, uh, context of this truly a Drupal Cold War. So I was I would say that, you know, I mean, you see that I, I will see this truly that bring all my books down together here. Uh this is my second book talk about the uh Hong Kong, Shanghai Nesses, that the uh that a lot of the Shanghai my, uh, uh, filmmakers came to Hong Kong during when 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 Shanghai was occupied by Japanese. They came to Hong Kong for just for soldiers for a short time. And then they 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 in a way they work in the Hong Kong film industry. Uh, they, they, then they produce some new blood. And some new ideas, so I call it the the the, the, the Nessus. But this Hong Kong Shanghai Nessus became even more intensified and more important after 1949, when all these Shanghai migrants and other part of, other parts of China moved to Hong Kong and now, unlike the wartime, they were they 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 were here to stay for good. So, so in a way, this is one thing and very important for the contest and then also the Cold War. And then I, that is what I came to interest in this war and, and things like that and yeah, culture. That,
0: that's fantastic. And, and it's really great to hear you introduce this book with that larger um, history of your interest in ambiguity, because when you're, when you're talking about... Um, uh, Shanghai during the Japanese occupation and there's so many so many political categories that that we uh that the pol- the politicized history has created so you are either a collaborator or a resistor if you were a resistor were you a, a nationalist Guomindang or were you with the Chinese communist party one or the other but we know that people's lives are really messy right and sometimes they're not clear and they're and people do what they have to do to get by and I think that, like thinking about that ambiguity, I, I can see how that sort of feeds into this book, because the as as the Hong Kongers are developing this identity with this influx of immigration, going through the dramatic economic and demographic and linguistic transformation of Hong Kong, there's some ambiguity about what what it means to be from Hong Kong, right? I mean, it, it eventually, as you argue, becomes their city, and, and we'll we'll get to that. But it's there's. It's it's culture in flux, right? And as, as historians, that's what we uh, that's what we find so fascinating. That's great. So let me ask you: What kind of an intervention into Cold War history and into Chinese history do you want this book to make?
1: Well, uh, I think uh, uh, in a way, I think I mentioned that. I think one thing I, I, I want to emphasize that uh, Hong Kong Shanghai Nesses is so important that to understand uh, China Chinese history, the modern China history that is something that is an extremely important aspect of the history that influenced the culture and politics of China, that Shanghai and Hong Kong, the how it shaped the popular culture and uh, cultural formations on the time. And also I would like to, for, for the Cold War especially, I mentioned a bit before, that I, I know that right now, the, the, the more and more interest in the last 20 years or so uh, more and more interest in study of the culture, not just on diplomacy, on the arms race, on the on the military the confrontation and things like that and also on the sino on on the, on, on the, on the US Soviet superpower relations and also on the Europe. But now I think more and more interest in the culture, ideological conflicts and also in, in, in the global South into the third world, into Southeast Asia, uh, into East Asia, uh, Latin America, and then and, and into Africa. But I think most of the interest of the historians uh, would think about their former colonies, especially those which had say hot war. Mm-hmm. So the Great Years in Korea, for example, and on that and in Vietnam. In Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippines, and all the things, there was not much interest or attention to Hong Kong. But Hong Kong was actually played a huge role in the global Cold War. It was, I I I would, I would say that it was in fact in a strategic crossroads in the in, in the Cold War, where the global, the regional, and the local really intersect. And uh, because it was the nerve center of the contest for hegemony in the region uh, between all these Cold War powers in Hong Kong. So I think that, uh, I think the Cold War historian need to bring Hong Kong into most important consideration, attention in in the largest uh, rethinking about the Cold War. And similarly, Cold War also played a great, great, great part in shaping Hong Kong is history and also in shaping the history of China and its relation with the British colony uh, at the time, and uh, so uh, and then it also revealed a lot about China's relation with the Southeast Asia, uh, sino-American relations or conflicts at the time, and also about the you know the uh, Taiwan Strait conflicts. And it also tells us an even more about the nationalist communist civil war that which people thought that, okay, it ends in 1949 when the Communists took power. No, actually it, it continued. So I think this is something what I want to, to do to as an intervention into the Cold War study or modern Chinese history
0: yeah that's fantastic and as as someone who you know works in southeast asian history and is i'm I'm, I'm moving from doing history of imperialism into history of cold war in the past few years i appreciated this book so much because it gave me such an important perspective on hong kong's role um not only does the book do a great job in uh giving agency to global south which is you know an important uh, historiographic trend in Cold War studies that, you know, believe it or not, Asians and Africans and Latin Americans uh, had had a <laughs> played a role in making their own history. They weren't just being acted upon by Moscow and Washington and Beijing, right? But also the, um, the important role that Hong Kong plays as this hub, um, both for culture, but also for capital uh, and politics between China and Southeast Asia and the 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 importance of the chinese diasporic community around southeast asia and a couple of times you allude to san francisco as well in the book um that this that hong kong is really central to that diasporic history which is so important for uh for understanding the cold war so um before before we get into the book and, and start picking it apart chapter by chapter, would you give us a brief brief and I, I know you could give us <laughs> four hours on this, but a, but a brief um uh overview of Hong Kong's unique historical context in the Cold War? And we've got such a fascinating history here with the People's Republic of China, the nationalist regime in Taiwan, the United States, and the British Empire all playing a role. As the people of Hong Kong go through such a dramatic transformation with immigration from the mainland, um, massive issues of poverty, which is, I think, something that today many people forget, the, the really dire situation, the vast majority of the city faced in the fifties and, and 1960s, and also the very specific kind of economic growth. growth. I think this is one of the, like the, you know, the early Asian tigers, which gets hailed by economists as these economic success stories, but that's for those who control capital for the vast majority of the population. It's, it's really impoverished labor source that builds it. Right. So I don't want, I don't want to answer the question, but if you could just give us some, some context there.
1: Yeah. No, you are, you are a good point. I think uh, you answered some questions. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, you're, I mean, right. I mean, I, I say that uh, my intervention is also, I very much emphasize the heterogeneities and agency of, of Hong Kong and the and then the people there in, in the Cold War. Uh, you know, Hong Kong was in fact, it's really a unique place. There is, uh, there's uh, so much, uh you know i've been mean, talk about it between east and west and things like that there is uh, some truth in that uh hong kong was unique at the time uh especially with the cold war time it was right next to china and then uh up till 1951 52 there was no border you know they, so the hong kong never had a official, formal, geographical, political border with China. So people can always go back and forth. And as the people in Hong Kong always said in the 1930s and 40s, when Hong Kong is in trouble, you go to China. When China is in trouble, you come to Hong Kong. (laughs) Just like the Second World War, when people who live in Shanghai say that when Shanghai is in trouble, go to the countryside when in the countryside was in trouble, come to Shanghai. So the urban rural thing in, in, in China in the second world war or during the, the rebellion, same as in, in, in Hong, same as people who were mostly migrants come to Hong Kong, has same kind of mentalities. So life was something in 1920, when there's a Hong Kong Hong Kong's, uh, big strike, almost a huge population of Hong Kong left and went back to China. So there's no border. The border only exists in 1950, wanted 52, mainly to control the enormous flow of migrants coming into Hong Kong. So people say because it's because of the Cold War, the Free China, thing like that, at that time the no main thing is to control the enormous, enormous flow. And I think I mean, when we look at the I think you're right, I mean people now forgot, but in 1950s, Hong Kong in a way like today, talk about Africa or I think was the center of the global refugees and humanitarian crisis. And that made Hong Kong become the headline of the world and the US. And that in a way that brought explained why so many Hollywood movies were made in location in Hong Kong. Like the world of Susie Wong. Love is a very, very splendid thing that we can think about. That. Even Bob Hope make of film in Hong Kong. So that was one of the reasons. And they in those movies always have something of Cold War things about the poor refugees living in the squatters. And then all those things. Always. Now, so I think Hong Kong was also unique because it's uh the the I think the Chinese government thought that it was more safe to leave it with the British than the U.S. ticket, and it would reinforce their containment of China. So the British continue its colonial rule in Hong Kong. Even though China could seem, it seemed to be, if if we read all those uh, documentary sources, diaries and things in 1949, October, it seems that China crossed the bridge in Nauru and picked back Hong Kong. They didn't. So Hong Kong was a, a, a British colony just right next to, to, to China. And uh, and then I think the uh, the British thought that based on their long, long experience in Hong Kong. So the I think I think we have to know, I mean that the British colonial government in Hong Kong had a lot of experiences dealing with China since the late Qing, the Qing dynasty. So they also thought that the best way is to keep Hong Kong neutral and then to make Hong Kong and themselves as useful as possible to the Chinese government. Why at the same time, in putting it as a neutral, they could also court the support of the U.S., so the time you can see that at the time, many of the diplomatic historian would tell us that you know a large of uh, diplomacy going on back and forth between Hong Kong and Washington DC, asking whether the whether whether White House could send in could send in troops to Hong Kong in case China would come in. So so that was a a a, a, a that time as you were saying it's a, it's a very messy situation, and also there were many many refugees coming to Hong Kong every single day from the 1949 to 1952, every single day. And then the Hong Kong government did not call them refugees because if they're refugees, one thing, the term might irritate the Chinese government. Why people left refugees of China? Secondly, if they're refugees, do you need to do any kind of thing to support them and help them? But they did not very little bit of it so the scene saw that it is uh, some of the overpopulation lots of problems and things and, and, and things like that so a lot of the refugees come to Hong Kong and, and things but uh, and then it was create massive properties but at the same time as you mentioned too Hong Kong also began to take off very quickly economically for two reasons it became the uh the uh so-called uh one of the uh tigers or the or the mini dragons. Among all those poor refugees, we, we talk about refugees, but about the poor refugees, but in Hong, like they come to Hong Kong, there are a of professionals, middle class, engineers, technicians, writers, film artists, filmmakers, uh, uh publishers, small company owners, as well as big. Entrepreneurs and industrialists and manufacturers, they also fled to Hong Kong because they did not trust the nationalists in Taiwan. And some of these people have the same kind of mentality, what we call the third force. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I know you asked the question. But uh, the, the the uh the so these people coming to, to Hong Kong and they also coincide with, I think you we all know that. U.S. quickly, with the outbreak of the Korean War, imposed a United States, a U.S.-led uh, U.N. Uh, censorship of, chi- of China. So no more imports or exports from China into Hong Kong. But then it means that you end the bloodline of Hong Kong's economy. Hong Kong, since the 1850, been the gateway to China trade, so it was the major entry port of Qing Dynasty national government in before 49. All their trade, manufacturing, all came to Hong Kong from Hong Kong re export into the world, and also on the port come to Hong Kong and import into China to avoid taxes and custom things like that. But Hong Kong has always been custom free, so low tax. So, for example, most of Hollywood movie going into China first import to Hong Kong, from Hong Kong to Shanghai. So, and then, but with with all these different, all these uh, so and and the things. So, it here, without much of the British government, Hong Kong government's uh, initiative, it was mainly those mainly from Shanghai, big industrialists, bankers, entrepreneurs, including many of the later the Hong Kong today, many of the tycoons and many of their, they the first Hong Kong chief executive. Uh, 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 his father all the time came from, from Shanghai, all these bankers and, and all, all, all these things, shipbuilders. And they start to build factories in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, before that, there's not much factory. So there, and the first thing is the light industry, textile and things like that. And then the US with support, the big support, would import those into instance, like a way of supporting Hong Kong as the major outpost of the uh, of the US-led capitalist world, the free world. So and these capitalists, they could take full advantage of the huge number of third poor refugees workers from all parts of China to work for mineral things. And there were very limited, very few uh, 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 labor laws and social welfare. So people will feel lucky, even you know, they get a really, really, really low-paid job. And most people at that time, the Muslim refugees live in squatters on the hillside, which are vulnerable vulnerable to all those uh, all those floodings, typhoon, and the lucky one live in small, tiny, tiny apartment with many, 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 many families sharing one tiny apartment uh, uh, things. So, and they felt lucky if they find a job in the factories, at least they could provide them some steady jobs. So, but then many of these were textile industry. So women began to get into into work that were going to change the whole gender dynamics of Hong Kong in the next, in the years ahead. But right now it's mainly survival, but then the rich could become very rich because of the, there was no really much custom duty, very very low taxes, and then also the 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 the, uh, the Hong Kong British government's policy of kind of laissez faire policy, kind of uh 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 that allowed you know I mean there's not much of the social welfare, not much of the labor law and things like that to to give to the to the work. So Hong Kong economy came up very very quickly. So while in the 50s and 60s, US, British and European countries support Hong Kong to grow this industry. Later on, they become trade conflicts. Too many cheap, good Hong Kong product into US. So that 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 was more for the economic historian, but that is, is a big, big change of Hong Kong after that. So the US led censorship of a sense of Hong Kong's holders, no more entry port trade that make Hong Kong move into industry. And that industry was possible because of these rich uh, 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 entrepreneurs from Shanghai, other parts of, 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 of China, and also a large part of cheap labels that make it possible change. And then Hong Kong played this role and then it would, receive support from US, other things, and from China. China need Hong Kong. There's no, note, it need Hong Kong. Even though with censorship, there was a lot of uh, underground illegal trade uh, things like during the Cold War, and now become now very well-known now. Many of the big entrepreneurs in Hong Kong become rich in part because of it doing this kind of illegal trade with China. And uh, and uh, and also China could now could also in something, uh, use Hong Kong as a, as a thing uh, to make lots of money. Like uh, in Hong Kong, that time was very, very interesting when I was a kid growing up, we didn't realize there were clearly indicated Taiwan nationalist stores. There were communist, Chinese stores, and then you choose where to buy what to buy. And the Chinese goods are cheap and they were really sturdy. And so you, you, you choose. Uh, of course, during, the, during the, the riot, people don't want to go into a Chinese store, but usually you go to there to buy to buy things. And most of the pools will go there to buy because they're much cheaper. So Hong Kong, China make most of the foreign currency, came from Hong Kong. And also some too, when you when you can, the people could also remake them, repackage them, and send to Southeast Asia all those goods. And uh, to support Hong Kong, China sell water and all the agricultural goods to Hong Kong: rice, vegetable, with good price. So keep Hong Kong's price stable, inflation stable, cost stable. So that is, there's a we have the free market, free market, and you also supply of all these cheap, stable products into Hong Kong. Even during a great leap forward, when China saw some huge disasters, starvation, the Chinese leadership still tried the very best to keep supply of foodstuff into Hong Kong. Why? At the same time, Hong Kong people, like my families, a little bit them would put this food and try to bring it back to China, to families in, in China. So it was an extremely complex thing so in, in, in Hong Kong at the time. So a uh, lot of bring ambivalence uh, in that, and then then the and then the U.S. consulate generals become the largest in the one of the largest in the world. Because they need to check how what kind of things were not to, to, to China, what kind of things not to come to US. But even that, the Hong Kong, I mean, there's still a lot of things that will go in China and come here, you know. So so it was so I, I think that Hong Kong okay, played an enormously important role in the Cold War, in the US-China relations, and also in US Southeast Asian relations at the
0: time. I, I, Absolutely, you have me totally convinced uh, after reading that section. And I'm, and uh, I mean this as a compliment, but now I have to go back and rewrite some of my lectures on Cold War Southeast Asia. And I'm going to factor in the Hong Kong factor because it brings to light so many of these issues. And um, you know, what does Hong Kong mean for Beijing? What does it mean for Washington? What does it mean for Taipei? And then again, as the book does so well. How do the Hong Kongers sort of negotiate this? The, these Cold War realities. So, what what's the overall argument of Hong Kong media and Asia's Cold War? I ca- I call this the what's your elevator pitch question. You know, you're in an elevator for ninety seconds, two minutes. How do you explain somebody your uh, your book?
1: Well, I mean, I I would just say that's uh uh yeah, you know I mean uh Hong Kong is a very important thing in during the uh during the whole uh. U.S.-China relations and the, and the Cold War, and the Cold War politics and the Cold War politics in a way that it was really the, the nerve center uh, in which the Communists, the Nationalists, and the U.S. fought for uh, uh, contesting for hegemony in Asia by targeting overseas Chinese around the world. And also, too, I mean, in a way, it is it is really where I mean the uh, how the global Cold War being localized and how the local helped shape the Cold War in many ways in the region. Yes, I would I would say that uh, quickly, and uh, and the Cold War also played a big, big, big role in the development and modernizations of Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, like that. yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely, so, absolutely. How um, about
1: that yeah. I think over point point.
0: That's your that's your elevator pitch. Okay. Yeah. So we you already talked about some of this, but um in chapter one, you talk about um uh Hong Kong as the crossroads of the Cold War. Um, and what do you lay out here? And you you already touched on some of these main players, yeah. but who, who are some of the, the individuals you identify in that first chapter?
1: Right, right. Yeah, good point. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean the, the, the first chapter it is, in a way, it was kind of a, to lay out like a film script, you know, all the characters, the location, the places there. So I I, I really mentioned that, you know, how Hong Kong so close to China and to the world that, uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, it, it, it. I mean, I just want to lay out there just in Jim Sa Jui, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, that uh, the famous tourist attraction, the train station. In ten minutes, you will get in the train station. You will be going into China. But then, in also in ten minutes, you go to the ocean terminal. You can see that there were US, US ocean liners, you had British, German, Belgium, all can be. You can go to everywhere. So it was here that really, really the world, the whole global things, come into Hong Kong. And and also, I, I secondly, I, I also mentioned that it's very important. I the idea that. In Hong Kong, at the time, it was the U.S.-China Cold War, but also the communist-nationalist extended civil war converged in Hong Kong that make it even more complex. And people need to come here. So that's one one of the one of the CIA's uh, personnel who later become the who later on become the. Uh, uh, the, the one of the first uh, U.S. Uh, ambassador to China, who called it the best listening post to China. So the U.S., the British, and everywhere come here. It was and the Taiwan came here, and the, and the China too. It was blocked from the world. It also came to Hong Kong. So it was if people call Berlin. Was the capital of 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 of, 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 of spies? I need to modify that. It should be the Western or European capital of spies. Hong Kong should be, and we should be looked at as the Asia's capital of spies.
0: I love I love Which that. Is, I think that that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you think so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, so I don't think Berlin was a group there was, a, global, was not a world. I mean, they claim that, but it's is, you know, I mean, it should be it's the East and West. So uh, I think in the, that is exactly in Hong Kong. That was the things I, I try to lay out there. All the spy wars, psych war, and also the intelligence uh, things there. And then there were through many things. So I So I introduced the, at the time, through the movies. Uh, uh, and other things, so the studio were divided. Uh, movie studio in, in divided into left and right. The Free China, uh, film uh, studio. The pro-communist, they called it patriotic studios. And then the both these studio, you can say that they call it freedom. They say that they support of freedom, and they they support. China because they're patriotic with China, but they both really fought for political legitimacy of Beijing or Taipei among the overseas Chinese. Who should represent Chinese in the world? Beijing or, the, uh, or, 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 or Taipei? Taipei call itself the custodian of Chinese tradition. China call itself the true authentic China, the new China, the one that marching towards a new modernized egalitarian and truly idealistic China. So Taiwan, look at that and say that one is that we are looking for a custodian of of the traditional Chinese glory glory cultures. And also is a one that's truly of a freedom and democracy. So, but but I I, I look at the movie they produced and because that's a movie, actually most of the movies because of the of the Hong Kong government censorship, they were actually most of them were entertainment. But in the in this entertaining, if we look closely, I mean that's why that's what I, I did since my first book looking at the, uh, Chinese literature and the movies under the occupation, those contain strong or weak political and ideological messages. Which part of China, which or which one, which regimes do we identify with as a true China and the US or the close allies with Taiwan. So it also help the Taiwan things. They help in, in many, the many things that they, 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 they fight You know, in Hong Kong, I wrote, I wrote in a book that, that frustrated many people of my generation or future generations that the the, the film movie studios is, is one of the main, main things of, of their contest for uh, legitimacies and for uh, ideological supremacy. That they have, uh, you know, in China, in Hong Kong, they have two national dates. October 1 was the communist government's date. October 10th is the National Government Days. So, one of
0: the. And it's a colony, and it's a British colony. It colony. So, there's two national days, and it's under British rule.
1: <laughs> so, we have holidays.
0: Yeah.
1: In Christmas, yeah. we have if some some schools, if they were Chinese, if they were communist controlled schools, they have holidays on October 1. If they were nationalist controlled schools, they have holiday on October 1, yeah. October 10. Yeah. yeah. Why do they also have Christmas? <laughs> so, so the, the interesting thing is that Michael is that. So, so the the the, the you know the, the the all the film studios identified with the nationalists. They celebrate nationalists October tenth, big big banner, and then they have big festivals in the big restaurants. All the flags going up, and October one, the pro communist studios had a big festival commemorations. So flags everywhere why at the same time it is a British government. I mean my book also I mean I mean here I discuss in a minute on that. So so the films and the, each of them have their own studio, has their own movie theaters and, and, and then the film they produce. So so all these have a clear sides. And then the and then and then the one thing also too the uh, the, uh, the, the the communists they had long long experiences in using movies as propaganda very effective, as you know. And they did it in Southeast Asia to later on, the import movie into Southeast Asia. And then they also did it in, in, in the 40s and 30s. And then they were starting doing this in the 20s and 30s in Shanghai. So they established the film studio in Hong Kong with all those migrant, uh, all those small people come from China. They have their own film studio, produce movies, targeting mainly locals and Southeast Asian Chinese people. The national government do not have their own film studios. The national government were catching up, they're not as good as the communists. What they did, because they had the largest Chinese film market in the world, they weaponized. Their market. If you want to want to make money, you come to Taiwan, but if you want to come to Taiwan, you need to be openly pay loyalty to the national government. So this is fight because of the market, or the, and therefore the Chinese government too. In 1950s, China would not import or would not the film market were closed to the world, except to these pro-communist film studios in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. So market, money, as well as politics play big part in this whole shipping, this whole cultural formation in Hong Kong. So, so the, and uh, and there's also a lot of intelligence coming in and out and, uh, and spies suit uh, this. So, uh, and then the, the, the U.S., one thing, the big support is this. And as part of the nationalist uh, war psychological warfare, they will always try to get superstars or movie stars or technicians from the communist studios to Taiwan or to pro, pro-Taiwan studios. So once they get one or two, they make a big, big things in the, in the newspaper, you headline saying that we look at how big, how good the nationalists, the, free, the freedoms are. Now they join us. And the US usually support them by Financial support and also the promise of green card migration. So a lot of this kind of thing going on. So I introduced it into the first in chapter to lay out the whole map out the, all, all these things. And also begin also to say that about the, the US uh, also play a big role in that. And especially with the uh, some of the uh, the NGOs like the uh, like the Asia Foundation. Uh is very important, play a big role in that in film in pre-media and, and things like that. And then there are also the Hong Kong government also very skillful in negotiating and navigating these whole messy, complicated political things. They try to play divide and rule. So everyone, you will come, you coexist with each other and you play the same game. So as long as you do not rock the boat, you could hear, but no one could openly, obviously, covertly say that overthrow the capitalist systems or overthrow the communist systems. But otherwise, you can hear stay on. So it's very but, funny.
0: But they're but they're but, all still trying to si- sneak that subtle message in there, right? So they can't say it overtly, but there's
1: they are. They all yeah. they all say that. They all yeah. they all do that. I mean, in, in covertly. I think the Hong Kong British government, what they try to do was to try to depoliticize. I think for Hong Kong films, more than any other films in the world, is propaganda need to be most, most skillfully placed and embedded in the otherwise seemingly openly commercial things they really want to make you to be uh, uh de-politicized, commercialized, very straight censorship and very support of, of this uh, commercial expansion and things like that. And that's why the Shaw Brothers become such a big thing, which I'm going to talk in, in the yeah. later chapter. We'll get
0: to the Shaw Brothers in a minute. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. but, but, but 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 these are, are, are the thing they're trying to depolitize uh other things. But also too, it is very interesting. All the film studio, In one small area, left and right are next to each other. Not only that, I think it's very hard to say you're really the left or right because people, many people are just they're all migrants from Shanghai. That first of all, I think I interviewed many people. They said first of all, they were good friends from Shanghai, and now they work for different companies. So it was in a way like in Shanghai under (laughs) Jockey. Occupation, you know. I think that you find job in this and there, but you a neighbor. You came from the same village. You may be even come from the a deep same decent families. So there were very ambiguous family connection played into all these things. So that's why Pro comes in France, Pro-Taiwan studio influence Pro Taiwan studio influence pro-Taiwan studio influence, pro communist influence. They influence each other and sometimes they may support each other, coin and coach. Very interesting thing. So, so I think mean, because of that, so a lot of this ambiguity crossing border, political border in, 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 in Hong Kong because it was a very small group of migrant filmmakers who live in a small colony of Hong Kong were 95% of people who spoke Cantonese. And this group, they spoke Mandarin or Shanghainese. They felt being so close to each other than to people, maybe the same idea, but from Hong Kong, but from who speak Cantonese, you know. So so there was a politics of language, politics of representations in Hong Kong at the time. So uh, this is very, very interesting. So this changed only in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so, so fascinating.
0: Um, yeah. Also, also, I would, I'd, I'd point out that um, the uh, when we talk about uh, Taiwan in 1950s and the 1960s, this is not the parliamentary democracy of the past 20, 30 years. This is the authoritarian rule of Chiang Kai-shek, which it really is a police state, has its own set of massacres of unionists and communist supporters. I mean, it's 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 a very brutal regime. So the the idea that the that the nationalists represent the freedom and democracy of the Western model that's 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 not quite accurate for this historical time period and. Uh, you know, I, I say that with some embarrassment as a um a graduate of Iolani school in or in honolulu which is the the alma mater of Dr. Sun Yat Sen, the founder of the Nationalist Party. So we went to the same high school, um, not not at the same time, not at the same time. He, of course, I know, a, <laughs> I know, I know, I know for sure. But, otherwise, we'd not But, it would also, but, but at, yeah. at this point, that what what the what the Gumbindang has become is is yeah. so authoritarian in the fifties yeah. and the sixties, and and it I was that, it was a right
1: time, in, time of white terror in, in, in that it's a what white terror. terror absolutely yeah in absolutely terror. yeah up till the nineteen 19- 80s actually
0: yep, yep, yeah 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 which which leads i think leads right into the next question i want to ask you about uh chapter two yeah on um the third force at ex in exile so what what is the third force and, and and what is this exile um um i want you know you talk about how they engage in film and publishing but what are what what are they in op they're not op- if they're a third force are in opposition to two yeah. other forces so who are who are they and who are they opposed to
1: yeah exactly i mean. I mean, the question, I mean, the comment, you make is just a, just a perfect uh, transition into the too uh, I mean, uh, many writers, many political figures, many things, they refuse to go to Taiwan, and they just wanna to come to Hong Kong. To them, it's more safe. So the Third Force uh, uh, started as a political and cultural movement in Shanghai, in Beijing, that time we called Beiping, and then in Chongqing, in Chongqing, during the uh, Second World War, when Chongqing was the wartime capital. So there was a group of Chinese, mostly foreign trained, uh, liberal-minded intellectuals who did not side with the communists, nor with the Jiang Kai-shek regime in China. They want to find what they call a third role in creating a liberal democratic China. They played a more, just a more, they're always in the margin. They play a more important role in the 40, especially when, the, uh, when, the, when, the, when George Marshall uh, came to Chongqing. Ah, uh, in 1943-44, uh, they tried to stop the civil war. He encouraged these uh, third force peoples. And then they uh, uh they start to get involved in the nationalist part in the in the parliaments in the early Civil War time uh, uh to to help uh paint the uh, the nationalist constitutions would uh, be more democratic, more more US-like. But they never had true power. The communists in Yan'an, the nationalists, never really trust them. They will use them as part of the way to court support of the US and Europe. They never trust them. And this group of intellectuals did not have any armies. So they really have no power at a time when military, as, as, Mao, as Mao, Mao, Chairman Mao said, right, the gun-barrelled to command. So after 1949 some of these leading third force figures stayed in china when the communists had the united french policy to 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 get them in in china but some came to hong kong Uh, they think it is more more safe in in, uh, in, uh, in hong kong so they start the third force and uh and also the u.s come at the time too before the korean war the u.s was not sure they want to support the Chiang Kai shek and in fact, in fact, I think President Truman began to, you know, saying that we should be keep a distance from the, uh, from the, from the, from the, uh, from, the from the national governments. So they also try to encourage the third, fourth, as a political movement, as a, as a, as a Plan B. But after the Korean War broke out, the supports were dwindled. And also a lot of factional struggles between these political third force leaders, so it, the whole political movement really, really uh, 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 declined after the uh, after the bit4 But very importantly, was some minor third force movements figures, mainly cultural figures, really marginal. They formed a a, uh, a organization, and this organization. Get support from the US NGOs. That we now we now we, we now know that it was supported by the CIA, funded by CIA at the time, the uh Asia Foundations. So they and then they support this group, and the group mm-hmm. very quickly began to develop very quickly. And then the target was the local young students, as well as Young students around the group, especially the one in Southeast Asia, and one of their magazines, especially called the Chinese Student Weekly, was the time the most influential student, uh, magazines ever for the whole generation around student Chinese student ethnic Chinese students around the world. And later on in Southeast Asia, they changed the name, but the, the, the group moved to, to, with support from, from, the, from the US, moved to, to, to Singapore and Malaya. And they had uh, office in Indonesia, Malaya, Singapore, and other Philippines. And they changed the name into not Chinese, but Students Weekly with the largest circulation effort among the youth with a biggest, really big, big uh, influence. And they enjoy more freedom of movement and publication than even in Hong Kong. Hong, the British government did not uh, uh, allow this group to say too much about, uh, about China, about Taiwan. But here in, in Southeast Asia, they have more freedom against communist, anti-communist ideas. But in Hong Kong, they were not allowed, allowed to say that that much. So uh, uh so that is what I uh, uh, uh I said it in, in in that great influence in print media and then the so the success of the uh, of this uh, uh journals inspire or provoke the animosity of the of, of the pro Beijing groups so they create their own student magazines to contest almost like a clone they fight each other so, and then this third force group in Hong Kong, too. I think these third four groups, I, I make it in the very big chapter at first, because I think these were consciously or unconsciously, willingly or unwillingly, influenced the largest number of Chinese people in Hong Kong and mainly around the world for many decades, probably even up to the nineties, eighties. It is on the one hand you will you, you 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 kind of you like celebrate liberalism, you you uh, democracies, all these things, but on the other hand, you will unlike the May Fourth Chinese intellectuals, these several groups celebrate and promote traditional Chinese culture in their anger and in their nostalgia of the mainland, and in their anger against the communist government's suppression of traditional culture, so it was a very interesting phenomenon. Though unlike in the Chinese uh, radical tradition, they saw liberalism and democracies should be the same as the Chinese tradition. So this is the whole thing that I, I think I, I talked about the uh, the very important Chinese uh, university, China, CUHK, Central Hong Kong that part of it came from a a university, a a very, very prestigious school called the New Asia College. It was a refugee school. It was a place that began to talk about all these new confusions that try to bring, to make it accommodate, we should say that liberal, democratic, Western tradition into the Chinese, Confucian humanistic traditions. So the third four intellectuals was kind of talk about this, talk about this celebrate Chinese cultural value, celebrate liberal democracy, and uh, you know kind of suspicious of both the communist and the nationalist. So that influenced an enormously among the filmmakers. Artists, writers, students, intellectuals, most people. So most people in Hong Kong, we always say that people, you know, in from China, always say that people in Hong Kong were anti-communists. But I think in general, we should say most were in some way a third force. Do not like the communists there. They were seem to be all very brutal, very 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 chaotic and things like that. Cultural revolution. That also meant people in China, in Hong Kong, need to bring food to their relative in China, in order to survive the starvation, But at the same time, also we're suspicious of Taiwan, the government there with all those censorships, all those brutal suppression of intellectuals in Taiwan too. So, so but of course it's easy to go to Taiwan at a, at a time, it, it all, because Taiwan, all the movies, unlike in China, all the movie were already more than Americanized. So get people feeling that Taiwan was modern at the time, but still people think that, most people think that, they also were suspicious. So I think the third force mentality will probably most prevalent among the Hong Kong people and even among most of the people in Southeast Asia, overseas Chinese communities. Except a group, there are a strong group of anti-communists, but many of the young people were also this unsympathetic to both in a way. But at the same time, also very nostalgic, very missed Chinese tradition. I don't know where you, you agree, since you work on
0: Southeast Asia. So chapter three looks at the American role in Hong Kong cinema. How were Asia Pictures and the Asia Foundation aspects of American Cold War imperialism?
1: Mm. Okay, wow, okay. Okay. Uh, so for the, on on that chapter, I look at. In fact, also is about the uh, uh. In some way, we can look into it. Is a uh, how the American cultural intervention into Asia. I think when you talk about uh when I talk about the American in the, uh intervention, that usually is about the what about the military political. But cultural intervention was now is something very important to look at during the the cultural Cold War. And uh, and it is here that the, uh, also the nationalist communist civil war become also become more, play a very prominent part indeed here. The uh, Asia Foundation was a very important uh, cultural enterprise in, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, was a U.S uh, as we say that is uh, now we. I mean only in the starting in the 80s and 90s people now learned that it was a CIA uh, 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 supported group. but that time no one knew that and it uh, funded many many uh, cultural groups, educational groups, intellectual organizations and then in, the, in Hong Kong, uh, in the last 10 years or so has a huge debate about whether people get support, we're called the agent of what they call the greenback culture, the greenback, because the U.S. dollar is green. So uh, what you say is the cultural imperialism. So that, so that put a lot of those people in defense, in some way brought back to the, the whole idea of the, during the wartime war occupation could you call this as a patriots or traitors? So so I think it is I think mean in part because of 1997 you know Hong Kong began to return to China so this kind of debate began to be more intensified about you know are you a traitor or what you know I mean nationalists right now there's some reasons but I, but I think that to put it in this way, uh, that time the the uh, the the foundations, support the chinese student weekly support the uh uh the new the asia uh the the new asia uh, college it supports also the chinese university of hong kong at its beginning and it also started but it but but especially it paid a big money to support the film group called this asia pictures, in contrary to many of the film historian or cultural historian, Hong Kong and Southeast Asia diasporic market, film market, were actually completely dominated by pro-communist movies and magazines. In 1949, 50, 51, 52, so so now the U.S., want to support a group to give a strong voice to the to the film industry. The group that came into being was Asia Pictures. The Asia Pictures was in fact was founded by someone interestingly, had no experience in movies. He was a former United Press reporter who left China in 1949, uh, come to Hong Kong. So and just to Make it in in, in a very brief. The 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 the, 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 uh, the, they, uh, the they both the Asia Foundation and, and and the studio agree that they would not make any political movies, but they need entertaining movies with a subtle infusions of political message. U.S. supporter agree agree. They say that the main thing is the main thing is good enough pictures to draw more uh, audience in order to kick out the, the 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 communist studios. But uh but why did the US want these studios to target or nothing but target at the overseas Chinese communities. They the all the audience, I mean the, the directors, which I think is a, is, a, is a good term, I think a good term called this uh Cold War entrepreneurs. Hmm is really want to give agency to the local actors. His interest was to support Taiwan and his own business ambitions was to bring Chinese movies, like many of the ambitious Chinese filmmakers had expired since 1935, to bring Chinese cinema to the global audience and ultimately to compete with Hollywood. And they thought the best Chinese movie was a theme that Hollywood could not do. That was to bring Chinese culture and tradition into the in, into the screen. So all these failed, all the efforts failed because of civil war and war and things like that. But in 1950s, New Asia Pictures, the, 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 the entrepreneurs think that with US support, with the money, with the market support, with the logistics, he could do that. So it create a lot of conflicts with the uh, Asia Foundation. So the chapter will look at in detail how their conflicts come into being and how they ne- negotiate the whole things. But anyway, they, they, the company, uh, uh, the studio stock productions when the Asia Foundation gets so frustrated that they did not make too many movies, and then the and then the and then the, the studios insist and then try to put a lot of money away to try to get into the global uh, audience. But also very important point, and I in, in the in, in the things, I talk about the uh the the conflict and the fight between the Asia the, the, the Asia pictures and the uh and also the Chinese student weekly group, because they both get money from the uh, the US, but they have very different vision, different strategy and different ways. So I try to look at, even within that, there's a lot of conflict between the group because they have their own different political agenda, different political cultural vision and idea. And we show the kind of heterogeneous agency of the local actor. They were just like what you said, they were not just how the U.S. superpower or the other social power try to impose on them. At the same time, I think many many people can do in the futures. There were also Cold War entrepreneurs who may get money from the China, but they did not do the same thing as China wanted them. So I think that was a, a very complex and massive thing, very complicated thing. So, so that chapter was really a chapter to look at the conflicts within this U.S.-supported Cultural uh, uh, forces, and also how they assert their agency within this U.S. intervention, yeah. and you saw in the in, in this film groups.
0: Yeah, and I, I really appreciated that discussion, and it, it get, gets the agency and also the ambiguity. And we have these these Cold War caricatures. You assume, oh well, if you're in opposition to Beijing, then you're just completely aligned with the united states it's like no 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 no. we, we have our own identity and our own ideas about things and um so I, I i found that just just fascinating i also really enjoyed the next chapter on the shaw brothers studio complex and just i mean you've you've done quite a bit of work on the shaw brothers and just the amazing story of that family and i i remember seeing some shaw brothers films um in chinatown when uh when i was a kid uh, my mom would uh, my mom was working uh, nearby, and I'd just i go off to the Chinese theater, and I, I remember some of these older films. Um, so this is this big family-run company, and the way you describe it, they, uh, quote, made China in Hong Kong uh, through film production. So can you tell us about this story of the Shaw Brothers making China? And you put it in uh, scare quotes for making China.
1: Yeah, 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 uh, yeah I mean, I did, I, did, I, did some, I did quite a bit of work on the Shaw Brothers studio before that, but... When I I be, uh, when I come to write this book, I uh, really revised a lot on my thinking about the studio. The Cold War actually was a, something very important in helping it to become a major, major, major power in Asian film industry. Now, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I could answer this question in different, different, different ways too. I mean, you first think that what is made in China? I'm making like China in Hong Kong. What I really meant is that uh, 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 with China out of the world picture, and also with so many migrants in, in in Hong Kong and in the world, they all their films were mostly made to create a China. I would say that it is idealized and romanticized for the consumptions of Chinese audiences around the world whether they were in hong kong they were in taiwan they were in san francisco they were in brazil or they were in toronto or honolulu Honolulu. (laughs) you are right Or, or in singapore malaya or in or in jakarta they saw the same china that they thought it was china the China, they miss so much. The China, they've been identified by other people as you are Chinese. Like when I went to Toronto, the first question I was asked, because when I was in, in, in Hong Kong, I never thought much about anything. And uh, when I went to Toronto, the first one I was asked in New York, in the, in the airport, and I, that was in early 70s. They say that you're from Hong Kong, you, yes. So you are Chinese, right? What are Chinese? I never much about Chinese or what, but when he asked me about Chinese, the first thing that come to mind is, I tell him about the Chinese I know about from the Soul Brothers movie. There was that kind of very slowly thing coming and also built in Hong Kong in the 70s, in, 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 in the sixteen seventies, We began to talk about Hong Kong, but we, we don't use the term Hong Kongese right now, Hong Kongers. We say more about the Hong Kong Chinese because of the. I would say that it was very much this third force mentality. Mm-hmm. So I still see myself totally as Chinese. So that's but then I didn't. Or I saw. I still talk. didn't talk thing about um, about these things. But he asked the questions: Are you Chinese? So what is Chinese? Then uh, then it come to mind is Shaw Brothers things. So that began to me. Uh, it, 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 it is really into indeed my unconscious and that's why I get into work on Shaw brother quickly after the, my second book
0: yeah and it's and the the films are uh m- historical epics for the most part almost very the idealized it. and it, would you say that it's almost a form of Auto or self-orientalism
1: I think yes I think it, yeah. it is yeah it is but you know I, I mentioned that in a book but I tried to say that First, try to lay out the Cold War politics first. I think, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, uh uh but you know, you know, even Annie, Annie, the directors, the famous director of the of, of the, what what do you call it? the uh, Dragon and
0: uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yeah, Dragon, and See the, the same thing, <laughs> same
1: thing, the same, the Chineseness came from that movie. But you're right. It was it was a self on without knowing that without consciously. But I mean, I mean, but but, but you see here the chapter was in fact laying out the whole thing and coming to the to, to that idea of the auto uh, uh self But the first thing is saying that it was made first to satisfy the nostalgia of the diasporas. This fit well with the colonial government in Hong Kong in Southeast Asia or elsewhere, there is a traditions of loyalty, virtues, harmony, good, filial piety. At the same time, this going back to the past will become so detached from the contemporary political, cultural, social dynamics, Singapore, Malaya, Indonesia, everywhere, Hong Kong, they love it, the government. And I saw a lot of correspondence and archive materials between the whole, all these British governments, indeed, all these places talk about all this movie. But, but you know, the Shoba come to Hong Kong, it is a very long, 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 complex story. You know, I think in, in, in the chapter, I did have my very best in that chapter to really create the whole thing, linear and uh, written things. I mean, because uh, the, the, the studio trace history back to Hong, to Shanghai in 1920s. And he's from Shanghai, they moved to Hong Kong and Singapore and uh, Malaya, Kuala Lumpur. And then they moved the collections to Hong Kong at the peak of the Cold War. Now, So making China was not something new. They did it in 1920s when I mentioned before, right? As I say the book, all chapters were interrelated in terms of the whole history. So in 1920s, modern Chinese are more made for type. They were yearn for modernities, yearn for democracy yearning for these, all these things, at the same time to attack the Confucian culture as morbid, traditional feudal. But then the early Shaw brothers in Shanghai, they want to play a different, different, different music. They say that we would like to play a different niche. It is we celebrate the Chinese traditions. They were the first studio to invent this genre of martial arts films, the first film studio to talk about families, how to worship filial piety. But at the same time, they were the first Chinese studio to introduce sound technology. The first studio tried to experiment with color, color themes. I tried in, 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 in argue in a chapter. On the one hand, they worship they celebrate, and even in the 70s, 80s, in the 50s, the Chinese traditions to to, to, satisfy the consumption. But at the same time, they celebrate modernities. I call it following the Chinese reformer in 1870s and 1880s, with the same idea of that Chinese tradition, Chinese culture as the foundation Western knowledge as the on the margin I mean you see a very famous Chinese uh, 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 reform idea and 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 even from Chinese people to today how to combine and mix Chinese culture mix Chinese thing and the Western thing together into a new modern way so the Shaw is doing doing this way in, in some way whether conscious or unconsciously so when they went to Shanghai the, in Shanghai they were not most they were not very successful. But when the group, when the two brothers of the four went to Singapore, they become extremely, extremely successful, not in making movies, but in building movie theaters. They compete with another big Singapore Malayan tycoon, the uh, the look families, the big, really rich tycoons. They also produce movies in, in Hong Kong, the Catholic, uh, uh, But uh, I'm not going to talk about it right now, but the book mentioned a lot about that. They represent one kind of diaspora cinema. They celebrate American style, modern modern popular culture in Hong Kong in, in, the, in the 50s. But the source is an other, another stream. They celebrate Chinese culture, Korean culture. But as you say, it is a romanticized and it is an uh, idealized one. And also deterritorized. So they when they come to Hong Kong in they make they become one of the biggest tycoons in, in, uh, in Singapore. And in 1937, they came to Hong Kong. Most of the film historians thought that they come because in competition with the other Singapore tycoon. But I would argue that that was only a small part. The main thing is that they knew that Hong Kong was now a nerve center, a major hub of all this propaganda, popular entertainment warfare. And they came to Hong Kong to build their movie town, the big big studio. And then the movies they make, at first, what they want, what they aspire, were the same kind of ambitions of Asia pictures and Chinese filmmakers tracing back to 1935, bring Chinese movies to the world. And now the Shaw Brothers thought they could do that, not just with their skill, their talents, but most important thing, they had more money than any of the filmmakers they ever had in China and other things. Come from Singapore and Malay, in Southeast Asian money. So they used it, they, they, so, so, so this is the, the big capital, they want to do it. And to come to Hong Kong, it's also very similar to to know, Hong Kong, outside of, outside of China, had the largest number of migrant film artists and talents, the best group, and all speak mentally, the best group. They all came to Hong Kong and did not go to Taiwan. And Taiwan compared to that had a tiny, tiny, a few people. So Taiwan did not even have a really big type of industry. So that's why Taiwan had to depend on Hong Kong as their as their center for film propaganda. So, and he, shopper can come and Hong Kong has more custom duties. And Hong Kong has very convenient uh, communication, transportation and Hong Kong do not have much labor law. They could use, they could hire the, the, the stars as little as possible and could use them as much as they could.
0: And you point out makes everybody live in the same dormitory. And I mean, it's it's like conditions that like, I think you said American uh, journalists were just appalled by. But they, they this is part of that, that Hong Kong political economy that we're talking about where capital rules and labor is very vulnerable, right? And precarious.
1: And that's, you know, all the way up to like the 80s and 90s. Why Jackie Chan movie, all the Hong Kong martial arts movie? Well, well, people love that because all those all those uh, 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 people who, who fought uh, in, in the movie called the stuntmen. There's no insurance. They come from very poor families. So when they brought Jackie Chan or Samuel Hong Kong to the U.S. to make movies, they're not as great as the movie made in Hong Kong. Because you need to buy insurance even for the stuntmen. And then the U.S. insurance won't pay for you jump on sixth floor to, to the ground. They won't pay you to, you know, to, to put a knife really to you. But Marshall, but, but that, what Shobar could do, what Jackie Chan movie could do in Hong Kong. Now, now you're making Hong me Sur- feel
0: guilty about enjoying all those Jackie Chan movies when I was in graduate school in the 1990s. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, I'm sorry to tell you, but that is the whole
1: thing. Yeah. And, yeah but then yeah. again, in the 90s, when some of those people come to Hong Kong, come to the U.S., they make movies, they began to realize that insurance, when they went to Hong Kong, they demanded. So the same thing, okay, so, uh, sorry, so come back to the show brothers things. I mean, this is a big, 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 big stories. And I mean, uh, so, uh, so they, they, they come to Hong Kong for that and uh, and and Hong Kong too. I mean, as you know, that Hong Kong had been a hub for Cantonese movie and operas for Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia and parts of uh, uh US. So there was a framework, there were things there. So 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 it was much easier for them to come in and just to expand and much better. And that's why the US and Shanghai come to Hong Kong because there was a small framework, a small media ecosystem that was also dependent on the foreign market. So it is all these important ingredients that was that was began to create this Shaw film entertainment empire, and then the and then the co is most important. The British colonial government gained the strong support of Shaw Brothers. It helped the politicize with all these not just of the epics of all these opera-style movies, but also martial arts epics. All these were made inside the studio bedlocked. They create all these look-alike China based on the Shaw brothers' owners and some of his top talent who all migrated to Hong Kong from Shanghai.
0: They and they had, they had this huge complex right the, mm. This movie land complex I mean it's hundreds Think of acres thing about that, yeah
1: the British government never gave they control because the biggest income for the British government was not from 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 from, uh, from employment tax and any kind of tax it is from as you know that from land from controlling this more limited amounts of land and let people bid for high prices. This is rarely, if not never, until then, give out such a huge piece of land for one film studio. And the Shaw Brothers, and the Shaw Brothers had a great reputation in Singapore and Malaya already. They won all, this, all the things from the Singapore Malay government being there a good citizen. And, and and they did a lot of philanthropy there and they make uh, all the movies. And then my chapter quotes a lot of them from, 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 from archives and you know, how people say that they are deliberately like their brothers in Shanghai trying to lay low at a time of war, civil war, violence, military crisis to stay low, try to stay away from politics. They show any movie as long as people love it. So but in fact, but in fact they did have tendency. They only show they show mainly Western movie or Western inspired, you know, the kind of character anywhere. But so they, they they I think I think I think uh, uh the show but first they uh he hired some of the uh the they really come in, bring in a very a very American style management, Hollywood style management. Even though he's a mix of Chinese too, he's a red authoritarian, the I mean the, the owner, and then and then also he hires some of his new tenants who all work for the U.S. consulate and the U.S. and then also the uh, the U.S. Uh, the uh, VOA, Voice of America. So they clearly told them a lot of advices, recommendation by the U.S. by the, uh, the Americans to Asia pictures. Including they recommend Asian pictures. If you want to make movies that more people love to watch, you should make movie about Chinese tradition. This is a kind of movie that Hollywood would not make. Other will make. So only by this, you could kick out the left, the pro, the, the pro, pro, pro communist one, because they talk about the patriotism more than all the things, these communist things. So it was actually part of it. This comes from the US advice. Make movies set in old China, and that old China seemed to be formless and shapeless, and also the de- timeless. You know, right? and,
0: and de- devoid of the political conflicts. You know, in it, one it, way, this all reminds me so in much. One way, in one yeah, way, yeah, this reminds me so much of about a decade ago. I went on a um, Korea Foundation um, uh, tour of South Korea that they they bring together a bunch of scholars to to teach us more about uh, Korea. And it was all about Confucianism and Buddhism and um, the great dynasties. And, you know, I'm a a historian of the 20th century. So we wanted to ask about the war and they just changed the subject or, or, you know, I work on imperialism. I want to talk about the Japanese occupation, change the subject. All they wanted to give us was this very idealized image of Korean culture as this thing in the past or new fancy K-pop, but nothing about, from eighteen nineties to nineteen oh, nineties, I mean this whole yeah, century was, I was mean, removed. Try
1: to stay away from the contemporary.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I I think, uh, but they make these films, but also they make some also contemporary film too. But those films are very much about the capitalist systems and very, very. Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, it. But they still try to put in feudal piety in that. I think, but I think I think this is, uh, it comes to bring the question too, is this just because of political things or did their Shaw brothers, did they truly believe in that? I think the same, you know, many of the old generation explorers, they did believe in this kind of old cultural values themselves too, in their families, you know, I think so. But anyway, but you're you're right. And that's what I'm trying to argue too, in the thing, I mean, you stay away from all these things, but also by you letting those things that you think are important, loyal, filial, pious, female, female, female virtues, and uh, and the women are very really, very really, really passive in all those martial arts movies, and all those things like that. Usually, uh, but not all. There's there's some of the third force things still in that because many of of, of the Shaw Brothers top directors like Li Hanxiang, King Hu. Those had a very strong third force mentalities. They did use some of the movie, talk about this uh, gender thing. Uh, so like you, you saw the movie A Touch of Zen or the Dragon Gate uh, uh Yin by King Hu, and and then the uh, the Love Return, They do have some some of these things. So so we cannot say all the things, but, but in general, overall, it is a this kind of a uh, of a uh, the historicized, okay. the politicised, the territorialized themes that become their trademark. But they were really welcomed by Chinese around the world. By saying that, I don't think that we keep all the credit to the show by himself. I mean, one, they have their own history, their political orientations, their things, but it also makes you know, the Cold War things about the stay away from the British. And then the Chinese government, I think I, I stress it in a chapter. They, with all the talk about revolution, socialisms, new China, Mao, all the things. They made some movies only for overseas markets. Those opera films, those opera movies were, were first, shown in Singapore. They broke all the markets. They broke all the box office. Hmm. And they came to Hong Kong. And then they brought into in into uh uh, uh in, in, in into Europe. They're so these are all patriotics, uh they call it patriotic films. It is all about the talk about the Chinese tradition, so beautiful, so harmonious, so nicely. I think the, 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 uh, it's a premier Zhou Enlai uh, uh, commissioned movie. So let's call it the Chinese Romeo and Juliet. Talk about Chinese love of peace, the Chinese romance. In order to show to the world, at a time we talk about how to end the, the Vietnam War or talk the, the, the war the revolution in Southeast Asia. So uh, yeah, I think that's why I'm, I'm saying that it is a, uh, the films uh, all make in the backlot, lot. And I think he was able to bring in a enormous uh, number of very, very talented filmmakers who were inspired and who were to really to bring out their whole idea of home China. To things too. So I think so, that's why I think the updates the, the were inspired by so many different things. They uh Shaw brothers own past the uh the mainland the communist China's efforts to win the to win the diasporas, but but China like all the time his policy changed all the times, right? So sometimes they they don't. And then they're also inspired by some of these their own uh their own film talents, the higher the whole nostalgia, the film market. But also, and, and and also the British government also like the way they do, they just got depoliticized, detached from the contemporary. That's what they like. So, and but also another thing I want to talk about before I could uh, move to another question is that Shaw brothers think that, or Run Run Shaw thought that he could be the one, they're the one to bring Chinese films now to a global audience in competition with Hollywood, if not better. So, based on the 1950s, a lot of the American uh, finance technology, introduced technology into the Asia pictures or other things, they start to pick up a lot of these guys, is these these uh, great technologies. Uh, and also in Singapore, they always start there. And they join a lot of film festivals. The film festivals, the global circuit, the Cairns at the time, San Francisco film festivals, and also one in Honolulu, and 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 also the uh the many big ones, and also the Asia uh foundation, joined with uh, with other groups, uh create a Asia film festivals, so Shaw Brothers joined this group. very enthusiastic and Japan hope that stood them to break into the global market. And they went to, they say Seattle to, 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 to all the trade fairs in Seattle, in other things, Chicago, and, uh, but it failed with all the great interest of the U.S. in the shortlist movies in Hong Kong or using their technology or the studio to make films in Hong Kong. They were not interested in building the films in the U.S. mainstream market. So, and the Shaw brothers then, and, and it was one reason why they make all these big historical epics. And because they thought the U.S. audience, mainstream audience would love to see the Chinese culture on the screen, but no. They did not. So very interesting. We now talk about this auto orientalizing. The U.S. at the time did not like his movie. Thought that it was confusing. Thought that it was like an art, like like an art, like like, like a painting, but nothing like a movies. And they, they they were simply very condescending to any 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 any, any art thing, culture thing from the third world from different long West. So the short, but but then these epics were very popular among Chinese audience around the world. Mm-hmm. So he began, after all these things, he began to focus his market, which I recall as a sociologist called sociologist called a global niche market. The market of overseas Chinese in Taiwan, also, uh, every market, and Singapore. Malaya, Indonesia, and Philippines, and Hong Kong. And the film they make was in Mandarin, because Mandarin to him and to others was the was the language of the nationhood that come the same as China, as the home, as a home for all Chinese people. But he too, Shaw Brothers, make friends with Taiwan, very good friends, because he represents Taiwan as the representative of free China. He made friends with China, with the Communist China, with the resident in, 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 the, in Hong Kong. They're helping them to bring some of the movie into Southeast Asia and they get sources from them to help them make these epics because China had much more folk stories and folk artists, opera artists to help them how to make these movies. So Shaw Brothers the precise but also political at, but at the same time, he also played a bridge between all these different Cold War powers in some ways.
0: Yeah, no, that's just a fantastic uh, read on that. Um, that, that famous film house that we, we, we've, I've read about and seen and putting it in that Cold War context just, just totally reshapes things. Um, I really appreciated that chapter. So you've been really generous with your time, but I've got two more questions before I let you go. Uh, these are the standard new books uh, debriefing questions. Yeah. Uh, first, can you suggest two books for our listeners uh, related to this subject or something that you're excited about that you think everyone should read?
1: Yeah, I think that I just want to bring up two books, probably, probably most people who listen to this uh, um, would not think, but I think most people in in this uh, would probably would know, if not more than me, probably as many as me, uh, much among me are, are, are about uh, the books is written by scholars. So uh, actually I probably should, uh, should I recommend some movies, but uh, if, if you didn't ask only for books. So I think I, what well, I say that probably they will not know that one is the novel. A novel picture was translated into into English. It was called My City. Wuchen. It was written by probably the most famous, the most accomplished Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong writer. She originally migrated with her family from China. And this story written in a disarmingly are a simple language and using a childlike narrative and a perspective to talk about an extremely complex change of Hong Kong going through in the 60s and 1970s, a big change of the identities of Hong Kong, that Hong Kong from a migrant city, a city of all look back into China to a city we call My city. So this become almost like a Bible for many of the young generations uh, uh, of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And they began to make movies based on that Hong Kong was ours. And this create a, 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 uh, people began to challenge the whole whole war diasporic cultural ecosystem. So began to talk about Hong Kong. As a place say, that we need to reform a place that need to change, a place that we because change because this is our city.
0: Right. This not just time. in transition not just refugees. And that, that I think that's such a wonderful uh book to invoke, because that's the end of your story. We didn't have time to get into it, but after the 1970s there's these dramatic changes, and then Hong Kong cinema starts to reflect this Hong Kong identity again, that my city. Okay, excellent. Yeah,
1: that's why in 1970s Hong Kong's movie began to change into Cantonese, not Mandarin. Now, okay, and then another book, I think, uh, I don't know what it's about, you you know it, called Last Boat out of Shanghai, written by the uh, uh, Helen Zia, Z-I-A. How to pronounce it uh, in uh, a Chinese American, uh, uh, a Chinese American, a very famous journalist, Helen Zia, Zia. last boat out of Shanghai. It was about, it was a very, very, very compelling, uh, exciting story written by a journalist, a Chinese American story about how people began crumble to leave China in 1949. Some of them come to Hong Kong, some went to Singapore and, and then to put a book because it's mainly for the Asian American market. It, it was, uh, it was uh, also come to the US. So I think the book really can give, uh, can give a, a, a a good feeling of, of that, about the, uh, of the whole migration things that rebel jeepings excellent and and something about hong kong so i think that is too good yeah
0: so i'm going to put you on the spot and maybe this is an unfair question because you got you've got so many but what would be two films that you would suggest uh the audience i know i know so many i would how do you pick your favorite child or your favorite finger right (laughs) but could you get could you suggest two uh
1: you mean in chinese language or hollywood movies available okay uh Okay, maybe not much about favorite, but this is something that was much more similar or, or, or associated with the, the book. One is the movie that I discussed also in, in my book called The Song of Exile by N Hui, H U I N Hui. This is a semi autobiographical movie is a young migrant from, from, Hong, from, from China to Hong Kong. Her, her family came from Northeast China. Her father was a uh, nationalist uh, army officer and her mom is a Japanese. So she brought up in Macau and then came to Hong Kong. And then she went to England for college and went back to Hong Kong. And then he went to China to see he to see, uh, her grandparents who brought her up, and come back to Hong Kong. So the whole film, really a a brought in a transnational and transregional uh, uh, perspective about a young Hong Kong Chinese become aware of the new identity and her connections to a vast vast traditions, and that complex. Uh, negotiation. And then I call this also, you know, many respects can show very really well that kind of uh, of a third force mentality. At the film, her grandfather teach her all, all, all this uh, Chinese poetry, Chinese history and culture. And then her father went back to China and suffered through the Cultural Revolution and told her when she went to China, don't give up on China. So in my book mentioned that. She now, in her early 70s, living in Hong Kong, what would she tell to the young Hong Kong audience? What did they think about China or Hong Kong, or Hong Kong-China relation? And, uh, you know, she studied in, in England. So I just think this film, now, more than when it first came out in the 1990s. provide much, much more food for us to think about
0: today? That's really poignant.
1: Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a book about. Yeah. And there are so too many films that are very really hard to really think.
0: Uh, okay. <laughs> that was unfair. Uh, well, well, let me let me ask you then, what um are what, you what, working on now? And what can we hope to see from you next?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh actually you know right now you know I am uh, moving to a more uh, I'm working thing about a project uh I'm uh, trying to edit put it together a a, 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 a uh, anthology on Chinese American cinema yeah because I'm very interested in the uh fight right now on the um, the Cold War how it affect the Chinese American sense of communities how it shape the Cold War or reshape the whole sense of communities. And then in this vision of China, it being such an important things of the communities. Now with Taiwan, mainland, the US here, all contesting for the, the loyalty, for the identities. So I'm looking at several films about, about that. And then also too, I also look at that people most usually do not pay much attention. The important hub of Hong Kong in the link of these US-Chinese communities, view and sense and look of China. So the way of, of Hong Kong here. So this is i I'm thinking right now. So I look at bookstores, movies, theaters. Who own this theater? How they distribute movie? Where to get the movies? And I think as you say that you, you watch the uh, Shaw Brothers in Honolulu, same thing. They watch this movie. Could they did they watch also the Yeast is Red from China in the movie house? Did they watch? And this all could be distributed by Hong Kong. Did they watch the pro-communist movie studio in Hong Kong film? How did they talk about this movie in the Chinese community newspaper? So this is one thing I'm watching writing right now, the Chinese Community And I'm also writing some short stories about <laughs> Chinese American, uh Chinese ch- American right now. Yeah, Fantastic.
0: So,
1: wow. Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. So Cold but... War and uh, Chinese America and it's main my project right now. Yeah.
0: Well, I, l- I look forward to seeing that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So Maybe you uh, can
1: you can write them for us too. If you can like to write, uh, Southeast Asian Chinese. Uh... <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Poshak, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed this. Ah, oh,
1: thank you. I really enjoyed it too. Again, thank you so much for having me in ah, this my, program. My pleasure. This has
0: been a conversation with Pushuk Fu about Hong Kong media and Asia's Cold War, out with Oxford in 2023. Dr. Fu is a professor of history at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.